Welcome to the Presentation Boss Podcast. I'm Kate Norris. I'm Thomas Craft. And we're here to help you plan, design, and deliver your best presentation. Hello, bosses. It's episode 95 of the show. Welcome. Today we're doing a speech breakdown. This is the fun episode where we play a talk from somewhere on the internet and we'll pause it and make comments and learn from that presenter. So today we are going from the list of most watched TED Talks on the internet. And today we're going from number four on the list. I would be very, very surprised if you have not heard of this talk. It is Brene Brown with her original TED Talk, The Power of Vulnerability. Yeah, and I see that looking at it now, it last month celebrated its 10-year birthday. If that's a thing for TED Talks. (laughs) (laughs) You know what's interesting? I've heard of Brene Brown for uh, maybe five or six years at most now. So it's really interesting that um, even though, you know, this is obviously 10 years old, this talk now, it still does take time to build that profile. Um, I just I just find it interesting that it was so huge even at the time, but it's still taken 10 years to for her to be as huge as she is. Um, and she's brilliant. I've listened to a lot of her stuff. Just oh, phenomenal speaker, phenomenal content. I just, I love it. So I'm really looking forward to doing this today. So there should be plenty to learn. So this was her first TED talk. It was originally given at a TEDx event and got promoted to the TED site. There's a very small percentage of TEDx talks that get promoted to TED Talks. So let's do it. Let's listen to the January 2011 talk by Brené Brown, The Power of Vulnerability. So I'll start with this. A couple of years ago, an event planner called me because I was going to do a speaking event. And she called and she said, I'm really struggling with how to write about you on the little flyer. And I thought, well, what's the struggle? And she said... Well, I saw you speak, and I, 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 I'm going to call you a researcher, I think, but I'm afraid if I call you a researcher, no one will come because they'll think you're boring and irrelevant. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And she said, so, but the thing I liked about your talk is, you know, you're a storyteller, so I think what I'll do is just call you a storyteller. And of course, the academic, insecure part of me was like, you're going to call me a what? And she said, I'm going to call you a storyteller. And I was like, oh, why not magic pixie? Um, I was like, I, I don't, I, I, let me think about this for a second. And so I tried to call deep on my courage and I thought, you know, I am a storyteller. I'm a qualitative researcher. I collect stories. That's what I do. And maybe stories are just data with a soul, you know, and maybe I'm just a storyteller. So I said, you know what? Why don't you just say I'm a researcher storyteller? And she went, <laughs> There's no such thing. (laughs) So I'm a researcher or storyteller. So this is pretty meta because she's literally talking about storytelling and she opens with a story and it's classic Brene, just beautiful. What I love about how she tells a story, obviously it's got humor, but the language that she uses, she just talks like she's telling it to you, like she's sitting in front of you. There's no like, and I exclaimed, it was just, and I was like this. And when we're in with the dialogue, just talking so naturally and so normally. And I think that's what immediately kind of grabs you. And you're like, this this woman could be my friend. It's accessible and easy to listen to. Yeah. Just a beautiful opening story. Sets up a little bit of credibility in a humorous way. Like, we know she's a researcher now. We know she's an academic. She doesn't have to tell us all of those data points about what she's done. She's just all put it in this beautiful story. Just so good. So I'm a researcher or storyteller. 
Um, and I'm going to talk to you today. We're talking about expanding perception. And so I want to talk to you and tell some stories about a piece of my research that fundamentally expanded my perception um, and really actually changed the way that I live and love and work and parent. Um, and this is where my story starts. When I was a young researcher, doctoral student, my first year I had a research professor who said to us, here's the thing, if you cannot measure it, it does not exist. And I thought he was just sweet talking to me. I was like, really? And he's like, absolutely. So you have to understand that I have a bachelor's in social work, a master's in social work, and I was getting my PhD in social work. So my entire academic career was surrounded by people who kind of believed in the life's messy, love it, you know, and I'm more the life's messy, clean it up, <laughs> organize it, and put it into a bento box. Um, and so to think that I had found my way, to found a career that takes me, you know, really one of the big sayings in, in social work is lean into the discomfort of the work. I want to pause here and talk about her use of the word um. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah. So often we hear, you know, don't use it, don't use it. Um, it's bad to use all of that sort of thing, but it is so well done and so specific here where it kind of delineates between a bit of a joke and then continuing with the talk. And it just does it beautifully. You could use a pause. Yes, I think the um works in this case. I'm really ashamed to admit this. I haven't heard her say um, which tells us one thing. Exactly, exactly. It's in there perfectly. Yep. You don't notice it. Like you're saying, if it's the thinking noise to start to move from, we're letting the audience have a laugh. I've got a slight noise, which is the um, which lets them know I'm about to start speaking again. Yeah. Yeah? Yep. Carrying on from what you said, again, we've got more story here, which is carrying her credibility. Like I've already learned that she was working on her PhD. There's more credibility. It's just being woven into stories without saying... I've done this, 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 and this. Yeah. It's just... It feels easy. Yeah. And in social work is lean into the discomfort of the work. And I'm like, you know, knock discomfort upside the head and move it over <laughs> and get all A's. That's my, that was my mantra. So I was very excited about this. And so I thought, you know what? This is the career for me because I am interested in some messy topics, but I want to be able to make them not messy. I want to understand them. I want to hack into these things that I know are important and lay the code out for everyone to see. So where I started was with connection because by the time you're a social worker for 10 years, what you realize is that connection is why we're here. It's what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. This is, this is what it's all about. It doesn't matter whether you talk to people who work in social justice and mental health and abuse and neglect, what we know is that connection, the ability to feel connected, is neurobiologically, that's how we're wired, it's why we're here. So I thought, you know what, I'm gonna start with connection. Well, you know that, that situation where you get an evaluation from your boss and she tells you 37 things that you do really awesome and one thing that you can't, you know, an opportunity for growth? <laughs> um, and all you can think about is that opportunity for growth, right? Well, apparently this is the way my work went as well, because when you ask people about love, they tell you about heartbreak. When you ask people about belonging, they'll tell you their most excruciating experiences of being excluded. And when you ask people about connection, the stories they told me were about disconnection. So very quickly, really about six weeks into this research, I ran into this unnamed thing that absolutely unraveled connection. 
in a way that I didn't understand or had never seen. And so I pulled back out of the research and thought, I need to figure out what this is. And it turned out to be shame. And shame is really easily understood as the fear of disconnection. Is there something about me that if other people know it or see it, that I won't be worthy of connection? The things I can tell you about it, it's universal. We all have it. The only people who don't experience shame have no capacity for human empathy or connection. No one wants to talk about it, and the less you talk about it, the more you have it. Let's have a talk about decision-making when it comes to putting a presentation together. Mm. Brene Brown, we know, has done her doctorate in this social studies. She's mentioned she's done a huge amount of research. Like, the first thing she learned was six weeks in, so I'm assuming there was many months of research. I'm pretty sure there is nothing she doesn't know about this topic. But what she's delivering is really quite simple. We've talked about um, connection. The fear of connection is shame. That's all we've got. There's no huge detail. There's no complex neurological phenomena being named. There's nothing that's inaccessible. There's been a lot of decisions made about the content to not put in here. And that is all reinforced by her delivery. I think if you knew this much about this topic, it would be very tempting to overstuff the presentation and put all of the information that you know in there and really power through it. Mm. She is exceptionally calm and controlled in her rate of delivery of this presentation as well. Mm. No one wants to talk about it. And the less you talk about it, the more you have it. What underpinned this shame, this I'm not good enough, which we all know that feeling, I'm not blank enough, I'm not thin enough, rich enough, beautiful enough, smart enough, promoted enough. Um, the thing that underpinned this was excruciating vulnerability. This idea of in order for connection to happen, we have to allow ourselves to be seen, really seen. And you know how I feel about vulnerability. I hate vulnerability. And so I thought, this is my chance to beat it back with my measuring stick. I'm going in, I'm going to figure this stuff out, I'm going to spend a year, I'm going to totally deconstruct shame, I'm going to understand how vulnerability works, and I'm going to outsmart it. So I was ready, and I was really excited. As you know, it's not going to turn out well. Um, <laughs> you know this. So I could tell you a lot about shame, but I'd have to borrow everyone else's time. But here's what I can tell you that it boils down to. All right, slightly weird section there, which I think is something that you should always avoid, which is telling the audience that you're not going to give them something. Like she said, oh, there's so much I could tell you about shame, but the bit I am going to tell you. Sometimes you see this in presentations where it's like, oh, I was going to talk about this other thing today, but we don't have the time for it. If you cut something out of your presentation, cut it and then zip your lips. Don't Just, tell us, yeah. Yeah, because the audience will feel like, ah, oh, so we're missing out then? So even though we've got a 20-minute talk, it's like, it's like, oh, but there's there would have been more and I feel like I've missed out. Mm. All right, super small thing, but I am enjoying this. But here's what I can tell you that it boils down to. And this may be one of the most important things that I've ever learned in the decade of doing this research. My one year has turned into six years, thousands of stories, hundreds of long interviews, focus groups. At one point, people were sending me journal pages and sending me their stories, um, thousands of pieces of data. Um, and six years, and I kind of got a handle on it. I kind of understood this is what shame is, this is how it works. I wrote a book, I published a theory, but something was not okay. Um, and what it was is that if I roughly took the people I interviewed 
and divided them into people who really have a sense of worthiness. That's what this comes down to, a sense of worthiness. They have a strong sense of love and belonging. And folks who struggle for it, and folks who are always wondering if they're good enough. There was only one variable that separated the people who have a strong sense of love and belonging and the people who really struggle for it, and that was the people who have a strong sense of love and belonging believe they're worthy of love and belonging. That's it. They believe they're worthy. And to me, the hard part of the one thing that keeps us out of connection is our fear that we're not worthy of connection was something that personally and professionally I felt like I needed to understand better. So what I did is I took all of the interviews where I saw worthiness, where I saw people living that way, and just looked at those. What do these people have in common? And I have, I have a slight office supply addiction, but that's another talk. Um, so I had a manila notebook, a manila folder, and I had a Sharpie. And I was like, what am I going to call this research? And the first words that came to my mind were wholehearted. These are kind of wholehearted people living from this deep sense of worthiness. So I wrote at the top of the manila folder. And I started looking at the data. In fact, I did it first in, this very four, in a four-day very intensive data analysis where I went back, pulled these interviews, pulled the stories, pulled the incidents. What's the, what's the theme? What's the pattern? My husband left town with the kids um, <laughs> because I always go into this kind of Jackson Pollock crazy thing where I'm just like <laughs> writing and, and going and kind of just in my researcher mode. And so here's what I found. This is very interesting because this is something that I actually often tell people not to do. And this is what I call the analyst's journey. And this is a big issue with a lot of like data analysts is they need to tell you how they did the research. They need to tell you how they did the analysis. And I personally don't like it. I don't want to hear how you did the research. I was thinking this is a bit of a case of don't tell us how the watch is built, just tell me the time. I think there's value in her saying she spent six years on it, hundreds of focus groups, thousands of interviews, a lot of data, and this is what I found. But we have gotten into a bit more detail than that as a part of me just thinks, is it important necessarily to me as an audience member how you got to that conclusion or just that there's some credibility behind this, here is the result. And so here's what I found. What they had in common was a sense of courage. And I want to separate courage and bravery for you for a minute. Courage, the original definition of courage, when it first came into the English language, it's from the Latin word cur, meaning heart. And the original definition was to tell the story of who you are with your whole heart. And so these folks had, very simply, the courage to be imperfect. They had the compassion to be kind to themselves first and then to others, because as it turns out, we can't practice compassion with other people if we can't treat ourselves kindly. And the last was they had connection, and this was the hard part, as a result of authenticity. They were willing to let go of who they thought they should be in order to be who they were, which is you have to absolutely do that for connection. The other thing that they had in common was this. They fully embraced vulnerability. They believed that what made them vulnerable made them beautiful. They didn't 
talk about vulnerability being comfortable, nor did they really talk about it being excruciating, as I had heard earlier in the shame interviewing. They just talked about it being necessary. They talked about the willingness to say I love you first. The willingness to do something where there are no guarantees. The willingness to breathe through waiting for the doctor to call after your mammogram. The willing to invest in a relationship that may or may not work out. They thought this was fundamental. I personally thought it was betrayal. Um, I could not believe I had pledged allegiance to research. Where our job, you know, the definition of research is to control, control and predict, to study phenomenon for the, reason, for the ex explicit reason to control and predict. And now my very, you know, my mission to control and predict had turned up the answer that the way to live is with vulnerability and to stop controlling and predicting. This led to a little breakdown. <laughs> which actually looked more like this. Um, and it did. It led to a, I call it a breakdown, my therapist calls it a spiritual awakening. <laughs> spiritual awakening sounds better than breakdown, but I assure you it was a breakdown. And I had to put my data away and go find a therapist. Let me tell you something. You know who you are when you call your friends and say, I think I need to see somebody who, do you have any recommendations? Because about five of my friends are like, woo. I wouldn't want to be your therapist. Um, and I was like, what does that mean? And they're like, I'm just saying, you know, like, don't bring your measuring stick. Uh, it's like, okay. So I found a therapist. My first meeting with her, Diana, I brought in my list of the way the wholehearted live. And there's just two notes there on the humor she's just used. One is use of the callback, like don't bring your measuring stick. She talked about the measuring stick earlier, has brought it back. It's a nice little uh, motif, I guess. And the other one is, I notice the vast majority of her humor is poking fun at herself. Almost self-deprecating, um, but certainly not about her abilities or skill as a researcher or a storyteller, but about, you know, I guess personality traits and other things that are going on. Her humor is directed at herself. And I also notice... The humor is carefully placed. So she talked about like she had this breakdown, she had to see a therapist and then added in the humor about what her friend said. So breaking that tension before moving into the next section of the talk. Interesting distinction. She actually is making fun of her ability, but in a good way because it is a strength that she's pointing out that, I mean, all of our strengths are going to nickel other people at some point. And I actually think this is an exceptionally advanced use of humor because mm. to poke fun at your ability without losing any sort of credibility, extremely difficult. And she does it just perfectly. I brought in my list of the way the wholehearted live. And I sat down and she said, you know, how are you? And I said, I'm great. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. And she said, what's going on? And I said, and this is a therapist who sees therapists because we have to go to those because their BS meters are good. Um, <laughs> and so I said, here's the thing, I'm struggling. And she said, what's the struggle? And I said, well, I have a vulnerability issue and, you know, and I know that vulnerability is kind of the core of shame and fear and our struggle for worthiness, but it appears that it's also the birthplace of joy, of creativity, of belonging, of love. 
and I, I think I have a problem, and I just, I need some help. And I said, but here's the thing, no family stuff, no childhood shit, I just, <laughs> I just need some strategies. Thank you. Um, so she goes like this. And then I said, it's bad, right? And she said, it's neither good nor bad. It just is what it is. And I said, oh my God, this is going to suck. Um, and it did and it didn't. Um, and it took about a year. And you know how there are people that like when they realize that vulnerability and tenderness are important, that they kind of surrender and walk into it? A, that's not me. And B, I don't even hang out with people like that. Um, for me, it was a year-long street fight. It was a slugfest. Vulnerability pushed, I pushed back. I lost um, the fight, but probably won my life back. And so then I went back into the research and spent the next couple of years really trying to understand what they, the wholehearted, um, what the choices they were making and, and what, what, is, what, what are we doing with vulnerability? Why do we struggle with it so much? Am I alone in struggling with vulnerability? No. So this is what I learned. We numb vulnerability. When we're waiting for the call, it was funny, I sent something out on Twitter and on Facebook that says, how would you define vulnerability? What makes you feel vulnerable? And within an hour and a half, I had 150 responses. Because um, I wanted to know, you know, what, what's out there? Having to ask my husband for help because I'm sick and we're newly married. Um, initiating sex with my husband. Initiating sex with my wife. Being turned down, asking someone out waiting for the doctor to call back, getting laid off, laying off people. This is the world we live in. We live in a vulnerable world. Um, and one of the ways we deal with it is we numb vulnerability. And I think there's evidence, and it's not the only reason this evidence exists, but I think that there, it's a, a, a huge cause. We are the most in debt, obese, addicted, and medicated adult cohort in US history. The problem is, and I learned this from the research, that you cannot selectively numb emotion. You can't say, here's the bad stuff. Here's vulnerability, here's grief, here's shame, here's fear, here's disappointment. I don't wanna feel these. I'm gonna have a couple of beers and a banana nut muffin. <laughs> I don't wanna feel these. And I know, that's no, I know that's knowing laughter. I, I hack into your lives for a living. I know that's, <laughs> God. Um, you can't numb those hard feelings without numbing the other affects or emotions. You cannot selectively numb. So when we numb those, we numb joy. We numb gratitude. We numb happiness. And then we are miserable, and we are looking for purpose and meaning, and then we feel vulnerable, so then we have a couple of beers and a banana nut muffin. And it becomes this dangerous cycle. Um, one of the things that I think that we need to think about is why and how we numb. 
and it doesn't just have to be addiction. The other thing we do is we make everything that's uncertain, certain. I am curious how she went about rehearsing and memorizing this talk. I have this feeling, and I'm, I'm hoping this isn't just like recency bias on my part, that she is using something like a memory palace, or she's using an acronym to meet the specific points she needs to get to. Because I noticed that a lot of the bits that she does seem quite, seem quite casual, seem quite loose. That's not a bad thing, it's just the style that I'm seeing. And in this last section, she talked about we numb feelings and emotions. I noticed she sort of started that bit about we numb about three times. So she said we numb emotion, and then she said, oh, I did this thing on Twitter where she asked people. She brought it in again, and then had another bit, and then she brought it in a third time. And I wonder if that was a little bit of like her technique failing her, or if that was intentional to bring it in those couple of times in a way that to me felt unfinished. Interesting, because I liked the repetition of that. I thought that that was really effective. Yeah, it was repetitive and it was in three, but each time she brought in, especially that first one, she said, we numb the emotion. Oh, I put a question out on Twitter. It felt like she brought that we numb sentence in too early, like she'd gotten to that part of her memorization and the story needed to come oh, yeah. well before it or after finishing that sentence. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I didn't see that, but I know what you mean. Yeah. The other thing we do is we make everything that's uncertain, certain. Religion has gone from a belief in faith and mystery to certainty. I'm right, you're wrong, shut up. That's it. Just certain. The more afraid we are, the more vulnerable we are, the more afraid we are. This is what politics looks like today. There's no discourse anymore. There's no conversation. There's just blame. You know, what blame, you know how blame is described in the research? So good to see politics hasn't changed in the last decade. <laughs> it's interesting because this is 2011 and this is well before what I would say is like the recent extremities of politics. This is so interesting. You know how some talks don't age well? This is like aged better. <laughs> remember, remember we did the Bill Gates one about the next outbreak and he's like, next outbreak will be a pandemic. And then in 2020, we're like, the guy's a prophet. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Because that was in 2015 that he gave yeah. that talk. This is the same. There's just blame. You know, what blame. you know how blame is described in the research? A way to discharge pain and discomfort. We perfect. If there's anyone who wants their life to look like this, it would be me. But it doesn't work. Because what we do is we take fat from our butts and put it in our cheeks. <laughs> Which just, I hope in 100 years people will look back and go, wow. You know. um, and we perfect, most dangerously, our children. Let me tell you what we think about children. They're hardwired for struggle when they get here. When you hold those perfect little babies in your hand, our job is not to say, look at her, she's perfect. My job is just to keep her perfect, make sure she makes a tennis team by fifth grade and Yale by seventh grade. <laughs> That's not our job. Our job is to look and say, you know what? You're imperfect and you're wired for struggle, but you are worthy of love and belonging. That's our job. Show me a generation of kids raised like that and we'll end the problems I think that we see today. We pretend that what we do doesn't have an effect on people. We do that in our personal lives. We do that corporate, whether it's a bailout, an oil spill, a recall. We pretend like what we're doing doesn't have a huge impact on other people. I would say to companies, this is not our first rodeo, people. We just need you to be authentic and real and say, 
we're sorry, we'll fix it. But there's another way, and I'll leave you with this. This is what I have found. That sentence, let me leave you with this, is such a polarizing sentence in my mind. I was gonna, I was gonna say, I reckon you hate it and I don't mind it. <laughs> I'm gonna tell you why I hate it, I'm gonna tell you why I love it. Okay. The reason I hate it is it feels a little bit like the verbal equivalent of pantomime, which is like, the extreme is like, this is the introduction of my speech, here is the interesting hook, here is the content, point one, point two, point three, here is my conclusion. And to me it just feels clunky, it feels like the verbal equivalent of pantomime, and I think surely there's a nicer transition you can have that makes me realise, hey, we're on to the last few sentences or few minutes here. However, I love that sentence because, well, it, it does what it says on the tin. I'm going to leave you with this. And always I see audiences and I see myself lean forward and go, ah, we're near the end, which, you know, if you like it at a comedy show you're really loving, that's disappointing. But in a talk, it's like, in a talk, people know that the end is where the, the best part, the take home message, where we're going to bring all of this talk together and put it together into something I can take away. I know that's coming. And that's interesting. Yeah. To me, it's like, this is the package now. You've got context, context, context. And now here's the take home little bit at the end. So I, I, I find that phrase really helpful. Mm. My advice would be, it's a helpful sentence, but if you can find something that's a little bit more subtle, I would like it more. This is what I have found. To let ourselves be seen. Deeply seen. Vulnerably seen. To love with our whole hearts, even though there's no guarantee. And that's really hard. And I can tell you as a parent, that's excruciatingly difficult. To practice gratitude and joy in those moments of kind of terror when we're wondering, can I love you this much? Can I believe in this as passionately? Can I be this fierce about this? Just to be able to stop and instead of catastrophizing what might happen to say, I'm just so grateful because to feel this vulnerable means I'm alive. And the last, which I think is probably the most important, is to believe that we're enough. Because when we work from a place, I believe, that says, I'm enough, then we stop screaming and start listening. We're kinder and gentler to the people around us, and we're kinder and gentler to ourselves. That's all I have. All right, there it is, the fourth most watched TED Talk of all time. Kate, what are your thoughts at this moment? I love it. It's such a nice talk. It's just, I think it's so relatable for every single person. I mean, which is the entire purpose of it, but <laughs> um, it's been said time and time again. Brene is just a master storyteller and she's a beautiful communicator. Her manner is just so nice. It's almost like it's authentic and vulnerable. Yeah, you might say that. <laughs> it's just good. It's just good. Your thoughts? I think when I'm critically evaluating a speech, I often have the distinct feeling of, oh, I would love to work on this speech because I can see the brilliance in it. I can see things that need fixing. I can see an awesome talk in something that might be a very, very good talk. But this talk... I don't have that feeling. It's just awesome as it is. Mm. And I think looking back on any talk from 10 years ago, there are things that have subtly changed that would influence maybe changes if this talk was presented today. 
But there is so much about this talk that, as you say, Kate, is just done, well, perfectly. Mm. Mm, I don't know if this is going to go in. Let me know. Mm-hmm. There is a part of me does think this talk could have been shortened. It's currently a 20-minute talk. And we talked about, uh, you called it the analyst journey. There was some sort of detail and background information that can maybe come out that might shorten this talk. Does it strictly need it? Probably not. It's just exceptionally difficult, I think, to poke holes in this in this yeah. TED Talk. All right, Kate, what was the one message you got out of this talk? Okay, so I have been thinking about this because it's not immediately clear. I'd agree, yeah. The power of vulnerability kind of is, but mm. for me, I'm going to say vulnerability is the key to a better world because she talked about politics and parenting and our relationship with ourselves, mm-hmm. which all kind of make up the world, I guess. Yeah, I um, I spent the vast majority of this talk wondering kind of what the point was. Like, I understand what she's talking about, and there's a lot of great little uh, nuggets in there. I was just sort of thinking, what is the message? And it wasn't until just after she made that sentence about what she's going to leave us with that she gave us those couple of tools about, you know, practice gratitude and joy and those couple of things. And I thought, ah, okay, so we've been left with some tools that use this pair of vulnerability. So, I mean, I didn't get a really distinct message as well. So maybe, yeah, pair of vulnerability is the key to a better world, I guess. <laughs> and then, of course, what did we see? Your thoughts on the visual element? Uh, there was slides going on in the background. And as I have said before, I think they're entirely unnecessary. I don't believe they added to the talk. There was some that just had like a visual and they were a bit of a title slide for some of the things she was talking about. Interesting. I really but disagree with that. I thought the slides really added. There was one that had, I think it was like a some sort of glass ornament was the background and I spent like half a minute wondering what it was. I found it distracting. Yeah, there was that one. It was just kind of like a pattern almost. But in general... I thought her visuals were very needed. I guess the question I ask myself when it comes to visuals is, does this presentation make sense if I'm not looking at the screen? And I think in this instance it did. When you're using title slides as sort of section markers for your presentation, that kind of only makes sense if you lay out a roadmap. If you don't have that roadmap... It's just visuals up there with sort of a headline of what we're talking about now. It doesn't give me any sort of guidance into where we might be going. It doesn't give me any sort of guidance into what we've already covered. There was two slides that did carry a bit of a joke for her, which was she said she had a breakdown and the word breakdown was just on a black screen, very small. And she said it was actually more like this. And then the word breakdown was just in a bigger font, a little bit of a visual joke. But otherwise, I i mean, that's why I didn't remark on it during the talk itself. Because I think the talk, you can just listen to it and you get the exact same effect. Yeah, see, I disagree because there was the bit where she said we're the most in-debt, obese, addicted, medicated generation in history or whatever. And it had four visuals. And the first one was in-debt. It had a picture of a credit card. Second one was obese. And it had a picture of a stomach with a measuring tape around it. Addicted, it had a whole lot of um, alcohol, and then medicated had a whole lot of like pills. And I think the visual element there just gives so much more context. 
it makes all of that thought process just happen so much quicker and you can keep up so much quicker than with just the words. So I think the visuals were really effective. And same with like he shared that t- that slide with like we numb and then kept coming back to it. She talked about we numb all of the bad feelings and then we numb all of the good feelings and then we numb and the word everything came up on the slide. Yeah, I just think that was really effective and even all the title slides just kind of helped me delineate that particular idea that she was talking about at the time. Mm. What about in terms of what she's wearing? It's not something I'd even noticed and sort of looking at the screen now where it's paused, she's just dressed in a nice black shirt and black pants. It's uh, very clear that the decision has been made. The focus wants to be on her presentation and possibly her visuals rather than sort of on herself making any sort of fashion statement. I mean, she obviously looks professional and clean. She uses her face a lot. So it's going to draw emphasis to her face and her facial expressions. But yeah, was there anything you noticed other than that? No, no, I agree. Because sometimes we see on the TED stage, someone will wear like a bright green jacket or something like really flashy. Something to make a statement. Yeah. And yeah, she's just dressed quite simply. And I like that. It's just professional, neat. Yeah, focus us on the talk. So overall, Kate, you said you liked it? I did. I love this talk so much. Um, It's easy to see why she is who she is and why this talk is one of the most watched talks on the internet. I think this is one of those rare times where you like the talk more than I like it. Mm. This is, it's, it's good. I don't like super <laughs> love it or anything crazy. Um, but yeah, as you say, I can totally understand why this is the number four most watched TED talk ever. It is a good example of brilliant speaking. Oh yeah, for sure. So that was Brené Brown, The Power of Vulnerability. There is a link in the show notes if you would like to go and watch it as well and see the visuals that we don't agree on. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, that concludes us for this breakdown and episode 95 of the show. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back in your ears again next week. Thanks for listening to today's show. Head to presentationboss.com.au slash podcast where you'll find the show notes for this episode, all other episodes and other free resources. If you've seen a speech you'd like us to break down on the show, Click us the link at podcast at presentationboss.com.au. Most importantly, we rely on you to share the information in this podcast. If you found value in today's episode, please recommend us to a friend. Or we'd love for you to give us a review on iTunes. It helps more people find us. Have a great week.